I want a divorce. Those are words that you hope to never hear, I'm sure. But I want a divorce. This is the, the sentiment that's going on inside of the hearts of the people of God in the book of Micah that we're going to look at this morning and have been looking at over the past few weeks. Now, we won't find this explicitly in the text. We're not going to see a little phrase, I want a divorce. But we're going to see it all over the text. Right? So just because you're not saying something doesn't mean that you don't want it and aren't practicing those things. They didn't say it, but they lived like it. The people of God at this time were cheating on God. God uses this illustration of a marriage all throughout the Bible. From Genesis 2, which is the first book in the Bible, second chapter, all the way to Revelation 22, last book, last chapter of the Bible. There's this analogy of a marriage. And spiritually, the people of God are wedded to God in a very unweird way. That could get weird, but it's not weird. Okay? It's meant to show the proximity and the desire and even the intimacy. And I know some of you guys are like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. That's fine, whatever, embrace it, guys. It's awkward, let's go. Um, the intimacy that God wants to have with us. He wants to really know us. And the people of God at this time were cheating on him but wanted all the benefits, right? Didn't want any of the date nights but wanted all the tax breaks, this is the reality of God's people at this time. So let me explain to you Micah real quick. Micah is a prophet, okay? Prophet in the 8th, 7th century BC. So we're talking about quite a while ago. His main message that he was bringing was one from God. It wasn't Micah developed something with a whiteboard in a room on an angry day, uh, but rather this message was given to him by God to bring to the people. And this is how God so often works during this time. He spoke through prophets. And this prophet was bringing a message of judgment. It's always fun, right? When someone calls you up, they're like, I just want to judge you today. That'd be really nice. But he's bringing this message of judgment. But as we've seen over the past three weeks, this message of judgment was infused with hope. That God wasn't just angry and let me send someone along to tell of how upset I am, but rather he was explaining to them the hope that they could have if they actually heard the judgment. The correct rendering of what's going on. Judgment is usually a telling of reality. We just don't like to be in touch with reality. We live in these little dream worlds so often. But God is bringing a message of judgment. And so we're going to be in court again. All throughout the book of Micah, we've seen this court scene taking place. This is where we're going to be. By the way, the next three weeks are going to be much more chipper. They're going to be more hopeful. Uh, I tried to get all this before December so that we could be like really happy and jolly and all that uh, in December. But whatever, it's December 1st. We're going to go for this judgment thing. So Micah chapter 6. Open your Bibles there. Uh, the Bible's broken up into two main sections, Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament is from when God made everything up until a few hundred years before Jesus came. Okay, it doesn't detail everything that's been taking place, but it's the main trajectory of the people of God. And then the New Testament was Jesus' arrival, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then snippets from within the first hundred years or so of the church. So this is the Bible, and we're in the Old Testament, about 700 years before Jesus came. So 
I'm going to put all of the verses up on the screen so you can see it. If you don't have a Bible, as you're leaving today, please take one. It's not stealing. Okay, I'm giving you permission to take that. So Micah chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Remember, court scene, okay? Plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. Oh my people. Oh my people. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Now what we're going to see here. I talked about a marriage analogy. We're going to keep seeing that throughout this passage. Because the way that God is speaking to his people. Is like a husband wanting to renew vows with a wife. So it's a spousal covenant renewal. Marriage isn't two people feeling like maybe we should just be together for the rest of our lives because I really like your face now. By the way, their face will get saggy and wrinkly. It won't look the same, right? So marriage is not me falling in love with the 22-year-old version of you. It's making a covenant with you that in sickness and in health, till death do us part, wrinkles, no wrinkles, whether you become a Leafs fan or you remain a Habs fan, like no matter what, I'm with you. I'm making a covenant. And my feelings don't dictate that covenant. It's not like I take out a daisy in the morning. I love you. I love you not. I love you. I love, uh, I love you not. It ended there. I don't feel this anymore. Covenants are so important because in marriage, there are going to be days where you don't feel like being married anymore. And it's not like this really deep, dark thing. It's like, man, I wish I could go do that. My spouse doesn't like doing that. And if I wasn't married, I could do that. But there are days that will be really dark. And you'll wish that you could leave. Or you think about leaving and you make a plan to leave. And the covenant within marriage says, no, it's not about your feelings. It's about the reality that you've become one flesh together. And so as God is talking to his people, he's talking about this type of covenant. I've made a covenant with you and I'm not going to break it. See, the people of God only wanted the stuff of God in the name of God. They like being the people of God. They like going to the temple. They like the feast. They like the celebrations. They love the, the, all the stuff that they got. But they didn't like the covenant. In fact, it seems like they didn't even like God. They just liked his stuff. And so here's what God does. He demands an answer from them. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Answer me. Here's what we see. We're going to see the unfaithfulness of the people of God, the faithfulness of God, the consequences, and an invitation. That's what we're going to do this morning. So first, the unfaithfulness of the people of God, of the spouse. Unfaithfulness. What we're going to see is that there are desires and actions. Desires and actions that are evidence that she doesn't want this relationship. When I say she, I'm talking about the people of God. Desires and actions that show that she doesn't want this relationship anymore. So number one, the desires. Micah 6, verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure 
that is accursed. The desires of the people of God were only wicked. They were treasuring wickedness. My kids all have this little special box. We don't live in a, in a huge place. And so uh, we don't have a lot of storage. So we give our kids like these little boxes and we call them their special box. And like you can put certain things in the special box, but other things go in the other special box called recycling. And those go out every week, right? And so imagine that like our, our children are collecting garbage and like they go outside and find a dead squirrel and then they bring that in and they put it in their special box and they go to this stank and they treasure it. This is what the people of God were doing. They were treasuring wickedness, anti-God things. The people of God loved the anti-God things. You imagine a spouse that finds out what a spouse doesn't like, right? I'm a, I'm a Red Sox fan. One of the serious conversations I had with my wife before she was my wife, and no joke, I said, Is, are you okay with being a Red Sox fan for the rest of your life? And she said, yeah, I don't really like a baseball team, so I'm okay with that. I'm like, but listen, you can't like the Yankees. Like, it's just completely off limits. And she's like, okay, that, that's fine. I'm like, but I'm serious. Like, like, look me in the eye. Like, let's write this down. Blood, blood, right now. We need to make this in stone, right? It's like the people of God found out what God didn't like, and they did that. It's like my wife becoming a Yankees fan and decorating our house and our Christmas tree with Yankees ornaments, right? That would be the worst thing you could do. And by the way, as a joke, if you buy me anything Yankees, I'll immediately throw it away. I'm, I'm serious. So any of you funny people out there, I don't care how much it costs either. Uh, they treasured wickedness. They were only out for themselves. And they actually wanted to emulate the bad guys. It's really weird when you're sitting in a room with, with children watching a TV show or a movie and the kids always want to like identify with one of those characters. So my, my boys are always fighting about the main character that's a guy like, no, I want to be Iron Man. I want to be Iron Man. It's like, guys, just two Iron Mans. Like, let's, let's do parallel universes. You're different Iron Mans in different places, right? Like, okay, that's cool. But when a kid is like, I want to be the penguin. It's like, what's wrong with you? Do you see the penguin? Like, he's messed up. Like, but, but they think of someone better looking than the penguin, more power than the penguin. I want to be the joker. It's like, you want to send that kid to counseling right away. Because no kids want to be the bad guy. The people of God wanted to be the bad guys. Listen to what God says in verse 16. You have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. These were the really, really bad guys. These were the worst kings. And God is saying, these are your heroes. Let me just tell you real quickly what they did. This is Omri. Omri doesn't get a lot of time in scripture. Here's why. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. End of sentence. Omri, you're my hero. Omri ornaments on my little Christmas tree. Then he had a son, Ahab. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It's like hero number two. 
They were leading people away from God on purpose. It would be like me standing up this morning bringing this, the Bible of Satan to you, being like, let's read out of this and devote ourselves to this. You're like, last week we were about the Lord, this week we are about Satan. Okay. This is what they're doing. 1 Kings 16.33, Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger more than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Man, these people of God were desiring evil but claiming God's name. We're still the people of God, but we do everything anti-God. Our desires are against him. There was no relationship. There was no desire for God whatsoever. So let me jump back into Micah. Look what Micah has to say in Micah 7, verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. He's not talking about the Assyrian Empire. He's not talking about the Greeks to come. He's not talking about the Persians. He's talking about the people of God. The people of God are no longer godly, but do you know what? They would get together every single week in a gathering like this. They would sing the songs, they'd read the things, they'd do the stuff, but in their hearts, it was just a big middle finger against God. We want nothing to do with you. Nothing. The godly are dead. So what do you desire? Do you play the game? You come to the service. You sing the songs. You give the gifts. Clap the clap. You serve the serve. You do whatever. But in your heart, oh, God is not Lord. Like he's not the one that has a primary seat. You do or something else does. On Black Friday, you found your heart longing over the next thing you can get that would satisfy you. Or even longing over the best deal that would help you in your mind call yourself a better steward. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy things on Black Friday. Don't hear that. You should. There are good deals. But what is your heart about that? It's gone, by the way. Cyber Monday's next. Yay. Let's let's gear our hearts up for that. But what do we desire? Is your desire that I just want to get what I want no matter what? I know lots of Christians that that's their desire. And I love it when they're honest about it. They're like, I don't like the things that God has said. I don't want those things. I want these things. I'm like, I can actually do something with you. Like we can start because you're honest. You're not playing the game. You're not hiding. Do you like all the benefits of being a a follower of Jesus without any of the commitment of actually following him? I've known a lot of people who love what the church can give to them, and and that's a good thing. But they hang out in the church all the time. They do everything within the church without actually being a part of the church. Because you don't become a part of the church by hanging out at the meetings. You become part of the church by submitting to Jesus and what he has done. Do you use God but plot evil? You use God and plot evil. I don't know, just asking So their desires were evil. Secondly, their practices were evil. Look at this. Micah 6, 11. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? The Lord is looking out. Should I I let that person go? This was a practice of the people of God. To rip one another off. 
Now, this would be like you taking advantage of the person next to you. This was how the economy worked. There was no online distribution thing. It was face-to-face. Like, I'm going to rip you off with my evil scales. I'll measure out the cumin, but the thing's already rigged. Like, I'm going to get more money from you, and you're going to get less cumin. Everyone needs more cumin in their life, or at least a just amount of cumin, right? They're ripping one another off. So do you do this? Do you do this? Do you rip other people off? Is this your business practice? Is this the way that you roll? Do you take advantage of others? This past week, man, we've had this nightmare thing with our, with our house because our house is that we're now this condo association, but there's only two of us. And I'm like, I've never done this before. She's like, I've never done this before. And uh, so we had this thing come up with our insurance and we had to have an electrician come and look at stuff. So she called the first electrician, my downstairs neighbor, and uh, the electrician came and he just, he looked at it and she said, he's like, whoa, like, oh, this is all a mess. The whole thing's going to have to be ripped out. $10,000. She calls me while I'm at work. She's like, $10,000. I'm like, kids, we're going to fast for January and February. It'll be okay. We'll be more holy. No Christmas, but let's just call Christmas evil this year. And like, it'll be, it'll be okay. You know, like in my mind, I'm like, how are we going to pay for this? And so I, I said uh, to her, why don't we have the electrician who actually did all the work come in? So he came in, he looks, he's like, what's the problem? We're like, uh, this, this is the problem. Uh, buddy electrician over there, who, by the way, never gave us his last name. Um, that's weird, right? But anyway, uh, comes in, he's like, this is all up to code. We're like, can you give us a letter for the insurance? He's like, absolutely. Takes pictures of it, he's like, oh, I'll have it to you in a few days. Great. That electrician was a jerk. He wanted to take our $10,000 when everything was fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Is that the way that you look at life? That's the way the people of God were looking at life. How do we take advantage of people, especially in in areas where they don't know as much? Look at some of the other practices. Verse 12. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. They were violent with their fists and words. Fists and words. Like people getting in fist fights in the middle of like gathering please don't do that right please don't do that but this was a normal practice for them they were violent with one another they were abusing one another with their words as well they were manipulating one another they were lying do you know what lying is it's trying to tell a better story than the one that god told so the people of god are trying to manipulate one another and tell a better story than the one that they were actually supposed to submit to Sounds like a fun group of people, huh? But I bet if you've been part of the church, the bigger church long enough, I'm sure you've seen some of this stuff happen. Watching people scream at each other over business meetings. That's why we don't do business meetings. You and I are not mature enough for business meetings. Moving on. We do business meetings. We just do them a bit different. Uh, Micah 7, 5 to 6. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. I think about that. I love you so much, baby. It's like, I love you too for your money and for your house and for your car and for your donkey. Like, don't trust her. Don't trust her. The son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. There's no place safe in this society. The closest 
the people that we're supposed to be loving the most and easiest, we're now looking at them to exploit them. This is what's going on in Micah's day with the people of God. Now, it's one thing to do this, but it's another thing to boast about it. Micah 7, 3. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, the leaders bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. And thus they weave it together. They're boasting about this. Yeah, I stole like $10,000 from my mom last night. Dang, son! Like, I took dad's donkey when he was asleep. Oh, man! Like, this is, this is the talk in the town. They're bragging and trying to outdo one another in evil. They're carrying the name of God, but not the reputation of God whatsoever. They're living like they're divorced completely from God. Man, if I'm God, it's so, so good I'm not God. But if I'm God, I just look at them and I'm like, like, I'm done with you. Hundreds of years I've been after you and waiting. I'm, just, I'm done. Done. I would have been like 100 seconds, not hundreds of years. And so what we have to see is that while the people are rejecting him, while the people are moving away from him, God is remaining faithful. There was a covenant that he made and he's not going to break it. And you have to understand this about God. That even on your worst day, where you say, God, I don't know if I believe in you in the same way anymore. I, I have all these doubts about you. God, you feel so distant. I don't feel as connected. God is not moving. There's nothing you're going to say to God where he's like, oh man, I guess I got to go now. He's going to be faithful to you. He's all in, whether you are or not. He's all in. God is a faithful God. God wants her. Now, if we were doing a counseling session and we had God and the people of God, we might ask God, are you in denial? Do you not understand that she's cheating on you with all these other guys? Do you, do you not get that? We might ask him, are, are you diminishing the actions? Are you uh, codependent? Because you need to be something to them. But God doesn't diminish any of it. He knows exactly what she is doing. And he loves her. He loves her. He knows exactly what we are doing. Us. Not Micah's day. Our day. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows how we tried to scam that person. He knows how we've been trying to cheat in this way. He knows ways that we've been unfaithful. He knows what we've been looking at. And he says, I love you. I love you. And I want you to wake up to that reality that I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I'm for you. The covenant is alive. This should be a moment where we worship. This should be a moment that we worship because we get to see that God is unlike us. God loves when we are unlovely. God approaches when we seem unapproachable. God comes after the naughty list, not the good list. That we should worship the Lord, that he pursues broken, busted up people like you and I. And look at what God does. Micah 6, 3, and 3 to 5. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And he describes what he's done. 
For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is pleading with his people. Look at what um, David Pryor says. He says, the language here is, a personal, is personal and passionate. Far more like a father's pleas to his child or a husband pleading with his wife. This is the plea of a loving God whose heart has been broken by his people's rejection of him. God's works can only move us when we remember them. We do this every week as we take communion. Uh, The bread is broken uh, and we have wine and juice there and it's symbolic and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we do that in remembrance of what God has done for us. We talk about what God has done so that we don't forget who he is and what he's done. But we have to remember the things that he's done and so God's reminding his people who are trying to divorce him the things that he's done for these people. And listen to them. These were former slaves in Egypt. And they had been redeemed, purchased, brought out of slavery, out of Egypt by God himself. I love you. I loved you when you were in slavery and I loved you so much that I broke you out of slavery. For us, for us, here this morning, We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to rebellion against God. We were born this way. You're not born innocent. Children aren't innocent in that way. We're born rebellious. And when we were slaves to sin, when we were slaves to sin, do you know what God did? He emancipated us by the blood of Jesus. That Jesus didn't come down so that we could have a nice December. Jesus didn't come down so we could sing nice Christmas carols. Jesus didn't come down to be an example and a teacher. Jesus came to die. That's it. He was born to die. Because his death was going to accomplish emancipation for us. We were going to be brought up out of slavery. My favorite genres, fiction to read, is 1800s, Slave Stories. I'm reading one right now by Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, called The Water Dancer, I, I think. I never remember the titles of books. I just read them. And, uh, and it's so beautiful and gripping to see the Underground Railroad working together to emancipate and bring people out of slavery, to run into places and rescue people. And it's like, that's what Jesus does. He sneaks into darkness, but he doesn't sneak. He boldly declares, light of the world is here, stepping into darkness to rescue people who are enemies of God to make you sons of God and daughters of God and to make you part of the family. You've been emancipated by the blood of Jesus. You can sing Bob Marley songs in a new way. I love Bob Marley, right? Redemption song is powerful and you can sing it because of what Jesus has done for you. You're not a slave to sin any longer. Don't return back to slavery. God also says, you are given leaders. 
You were given leaders to bring you into this promised land. God promised the people of God in Egypt a land that he was going to bring them to. And he did. And he gave them the leaders to go in there and bring them out. And in a similar way, in a similar way, God has given the church leaders to point one another back to Jesus. That we can be reminded that your identity is not in your work, in your family, in your disease, in your sickness. Like your identity is not rest in any of that. You have a new identity. It's in Christ because Jesus bore your sin on the cross. He died. He got up out of the grave on the third day and he offers you hope. My whole job, all I'm supposed to do today is point you to Jesus is to show how Jesus is better than anything and everything that you would go after. That's it. We get to get into the word of God, into Micah, but my whole job is to point you to Jesus. Leaders around you are supposed to point you to Jesus, and then as you learn to lead yourself, you begin to lead others, and you point them to Jesus. That's our role. That's our opportunity, our privilege. We get to lead people to Jesus. God says, I protected you against destruction. There's this whole story in Numbers 22 and the surrounding areas, book in the Old Testament, of how this this King Balak of the Moabites was trying to get this prophet, mysterious prophet Balaam, to curse the people of God as they were coming up out of Egypt. And God wouldn't let him. He protected this destruction of his people from happening. And in the same way, God has protected you from destruction. He has sealed you, if you're a follower of Jesus, with his spirit. That even if you were to lose your life, you can't be taken from him. Nothing can separate you from his love. He is committed to you, even after the grave. Forever, you are his. He's protected you for joy of him. Do you know that's why you were made? Some of you wish that you were born into a different family. Maybe had a different mom or dad. Maybe had a a dad who had uh, lots of power or lots of control or lots of resources so that you you could benefit from that. Well, you've been born again. You've been born into a new family. When we baptize people, I, I... I or whoever is doing the baptizing, we're whispering to them that you have a new dad. Though your earthly dad might be here watching, you have a a better dad. That this dad is going to die one day. The dad that that you've been brought into his house and into his family, he's never going to die. He's never going to let you down. He's always going to be there for you. We baptize them into that. That you were made for him. You were made to enjoy him. You were made to to curl up on him, to grab him when you're scared. You're made to bring your anxieties to him. You're made to to bring the, the, the accomplishments that you've done to him and say, God, Dad, this was all for you and because of you. Thank you so much. Instead of trying to live a life where you're showing God how awesome you are because maybe your earthly dad didn't approve of you enough. So you think that the game with God is that you have to show him how good you are so that he'll accept you. But the opposite is true. He's accepted you not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. You're accepted. You're approved. You don't need to show him how great you are. He loves you. 
And he's going to change you to be just like his son. He makes you to enjoy him. He wants what's best for you. So how has his pursuit of what's best for you wearied you and made you tired? I meet with so many people from our church, outside of our church, and I often hear, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I can keep following God. And I'm like, well, tell me, tell me about that. Never in those instances do they talk about the relationship they, w- that they have with him. They talk about the rules and the regulations and fighting temptations on their own. And it's like they've, they've unplugged the appliance. They've unplugged the refrigerator and they're expecting the stuff to stay cold. And they're really trying to keep it cold as best they can. And they're tired. And it's in those moments where I'm like, well, hold on a second. You pick up the plug and you, you plug it in and you get this. What happened? Like you were trying to do the things of God on your own. Like you were trying to be God. You've been trying to show God how amazing you are. God wants for you to actually know him. And all of the other things flow from that that you would enjoy his presence. So when you wake up in the morning to do a uh, devotional or quiet time or your time with God, whatever you call it, or whenever you do it during the day, if you sit down just to say, this year I'm going to make it through the whole Bible, why? Well, so I can make it through the whole Bible. Bad reason. I want to make it through the whole Bible. Why? Because my wife won't make it through the whole Bible and I just want to show her I'm more spiritual. Bad reason. I want to read it, the Bible this year. Why? Because I just want to know God. I want to hear from God. I want to enjoy his presence. I want to sit and be shattered at the goodness of God in Genesis 1. And maybe December 31st of next year, you're still in Genesis 1 because you can't get over how good of a God he is in that chapter. And that's okay. That's okay. That we go to God to get God not his stuff. You were made for him. You were made for him. He wants what's best for you. Why has that wearied you? Why has that made you tired? It's like a teenager. It's like a teenager that's upset with their parents for stopping them from being in a relationship where they're going to be trafficked. We know of of a family who's their, their child was in a relationship that everyone saw from the outside. That this person is setting you up to be trafficked, to be sent away. And they're doing it through love. Or it seems like it's love. And they're upset. They're upset. Oh, you just want to stop this relationship. I finally found someone I love and you just want to stop it. By the grace of God that it was stopped. It was stopped. But that's what we can be like when God doesn't give us what we want. We don't see what we'd actually get if we had the, the, the future and the path that we actually wanted. But God knows what's best for us. What God is going to say is that there's consequences. If you break this covenant with me and you walk away, there, there are consequences. In chapter 6, verse 9, the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. There are consequences. But we need to hear this. 
okay? Sometimes we can see God as just this mean judge, this angry old man in the sky somewhere looking to rain down hail and lightning and whatever. But hear this, the Lord is patient. He's been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years through the unfaithfulness of his people. And this is a kindness that he actually addresses this with them. He could have just let them walk into destruction, but instead he comes to them. And look what he says in Micah 6, 13 to 15. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. Your future without me, God is saying, is a it's desolate. There's nothing. Your future without me is futile. You can't self-preserve. You aren't in charge of all things. You're going to be hungry and parched. And this is going to be your reward for going after another husband, for going after someone that can't actually satisfy. That as covenant breakers, they and we, we earn emptiness but look at the invitation that's given jesus's sermon on the mount right blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for you should be satisfied jesus is saying there's an invitation to all of you who are hungry and thirsty and wanting and desiring like come to me those that that want eternal water come to me come to me there's an invitation that god gives He's in the middle of court, divorce hearings happening. And he stands up and he's like, come, but come to me. All these things have happened. Bad stuff is on the horizon for you. But come to me, I still want you. I love you, I'm for you. And the temptation is that we just try and change things on our own. We see, oh man, I've been an idiot. I see this in counseling sessions with couples that the the spouse will finally see that they're just being an idiot, right? They are, okay? I'm just saying, calling it like it is. Like, they're, they're knuckleheads. They're, they're, they're not believing scripture. They're not loving their spouse. They see it. And the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I'm gonna make it right. And I say, no, you're not. You can't right the wrongs that have been done. And this is our thing. When we feel the weight of the things that we've done wrong, say, oh, I'm gonna make it right. 2020 is going to be the year that I do everything the Lord wants. No, it's not. It's not. That's bad news if we sent you out with that. Go try harder. Let's pray. Right? That would suck. That would be the worst message you would hear all week. God just wants you to try harder. Help yourselves more so he can help you more. Right? Dumb messages that get preached. Micah 6, 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is the people of God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God's desire is not that you sacrifice your child. God's desire is not that you give him all the olive oil in your cupboard. God's desire is not that you give him your house. He already owns it. It's not his desire. 
Do you know what God desires? He wants us to see our anti-God desires and practices. He wants for us to actually see those. Oh, wow. Like all these areas of life, they're messed up. He wants for us to see these. Micah 7, 4, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. The Lord wants for you to be able to say, I am a briar. I am this thorn patch, right? There's not all this good that's moving in me. And then he wants for us to mourn them. Do you mourn your sin? Micah 7, 1 starts out, woe is me. Micah hears this about the people of God, the judgment that's coming. Woe is me. Woe is us. Do you mourn over your sin? Do you weep over your sin? Do you weep over your addictions? Do you weep over the city? We've talked about this throughout the series. But the Lord wants for us to be able to weep and mourn over the the destruction that's coming to our city. Especially in a time where we think like, man, Montreal's so affluent. We're rising. We're the next Toronto for housing. By the way, that's not good necessarily for all of us, right? But we boast in these things. And yet there's a judgment that's coming. Do we weep over that for the people? So God desires we see our anti-God desires and practices. But we don't stay there. We don't stay there in our sin. God desires that we see him. We see what we're doing against him, and then we look at him. Micah 7, 7. This is the the end of our passage. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. God wants for you to see how bad you are, and then to immediately look to him and see how good he is. And not try and make it right with him, but to see that he's making you right. He's made you righteous and he's going to continue to make you righteous. He's going to make you look more and more like his son, Jesus. That in God, you have a strong, compassionate, committed friend and God. And when we look to him, we see our sin and then we look to him, our hope is renewed. We have hope. If I just stay here, I'm hopeless. If I try and work my way out, I'm hopeless. But when I look to him, there's so much hope to overcome these things. My hope is renewed. This is what Mike is saying. That I'm going to wait for you. Despite what I see going on around me, I'm going to wait for you. Even in hardship. Even in hardship. Man, I'm waiting for revival to come to Montreal. Some of you are... are more well-seasoned than me, you've been praying for Montreal for much longer than I've even been alive. And you're saying, when? When, Lord? And it's so easy to only stack our joy in comparison with the movement of the Lord. So we'll say, man, I'm really joyful when lots of people are getting baptized. Really joyful when this theater's full. Really joyful when we're above budget. Really joyful when all, but when those things aren't happening, it's like, ah, woe is me, like, Nothing's going well. I can't find any joy. But the prophet Habakkuk, another prophet in the Old Testament, says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Think of like empty bank accounts, okay? These produce things are sometimes hard to get into. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. Stocks are plummeting. 
the flock be cut off from the fold. There's only vegetarian food, okay? And there be no herd in the stalls, only tofu to come. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In the midst of nothingness, we can have joy because God is here. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to be violent. We don't have to try and move the kingdom forward by our might. He's going to do it in his time. And so we can sit, wait, find great joy in him and participate in whatever things he is opening up. But do you know what's encouraging about Micah 7, 7? Is that God actually hears you. God wants for you to pray for the city. God wants for you to pray for your own soul, for your family, for the church, for the global church, for the city to see revival. God would love to answer these prayers. So the invitation is to see our anti-God desires and practices. God desires that we see him for him, to get to enjoy him. And the third thing is that we learn to live with God's desires. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God desires that we learn to act like him. This is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God comes upon us when we say, Jesus, I'm all in. I believe in your death and resurrection. I want to be part of your people. The Spirit comes upon us, seals us, makes us children of God, and then he teaches us to walk like Jesus. See, Kanye West was almost right when he said, Jesus walks with me, right? But it's a spirit that actually is walking in us, following Jesus. We walk humbly. We walk humbly that we're aware of his presence, that we wake up every day. This morning, it was strange. I went to bed last night at like 8.30, didn't feel very good, don't know why. Woke up, and my first thought was like, today might be the most important day of my life. I'm like, why would I think that? But it could be. Today could be one of the most important days in our lives. Why? Because the presence of God might break into your life in a completely new way. The power of God might overcome you to be a child of God. The presence of God and the power of God might lead you to something that you never thought of before today. And today starts a brand new trajectory. And from now on, you live completely different because the Lord revealed something to you that you're going to say no to by the power of the Spirit and follow Him in this way. That today could be one of the most important days of your life. And today could be the day that revival starts in Montreal. It could be the day. Today could be the most important day for that. And so we're encouraged to be sent out of this place to go establish the presence of God everywhere in this city. That I think that, that our vision is far too small, but we have to be realistic. We have this God who is greater than all we can ask or think, but we have to be realistic because this is how much we have. But I'm constantly being challenged by guys like Jordan and Norton to, to pray bigger and more specific and ask God for very specific things. Because maybe God wants for you to start a ministry in this city that would rescue people from sex slavery and trafficking. 
Maybe God would have you start a ministry that would help people who are addicted to money and success. Maybe God would have you start a ministry um, for people who are approval addicts. Like, I don't know what the Lord wants for you to do. But I know that he wants for you to take the light of the world that is at work in you and bring it to every place that you're going in this city. And do it humbly, because it's all him, not you. To do justice, that we treat people right. We offer all people respect, integrity, and fairness. This is why things like Bill 21 are garbage. Because we're not treating people with respect and dignity. And this isn't a political statement, okay? I'm not like, don't try and read into my politics. I'm very confused. I come from America. I'm confused with the two political party system. It's like, what, what good candidate is on this ballot? You know? And then I come here and it's like, no, you vote for someone else, not really them. Like, okay, I'm more confused now. Not political. But the idea is that everyone should be treated with value. Wherever they're coming from. Because they're made in the image of God that we respect them, that we're the people who are righting wrongs in this city. We're the ones getting our heads chopped off, proverbially or literally, for others and the rights of others. Abolition of slavery, that was hugely pushed by William Wilberforce, follower of Jesus. When's the abolition of sex slavery gonna stop? And which Christian is the Lord gonna use to move that forward? Listen to this quote by... Philip Reichen. Seeking the peace of the city means being a good neighbor. It means shoveling the sidewalk. It means cleaning the street. It means planting a tree. It means feeding the poor. It means volunteering at a local school. It means greeting people in the store. It means shutting down immoral businesses. It means embracing people from every ethnic background with the love of Christ. That's what it means to do justice. That we seek peace in the city. And lastly, lastly, we love kindness. That means we look and we smell like Jesus. We're like scratch and sniffs. Like, I don't know what Jesus smelled like. It's like, well, right there. It's not going to be perfect. A little B.O. maybe. I'm not going to completely smell like Jesus, but, but slowly starting to. And when people come around the people of God, and they, they sniff out what's going on. We had someone come to our baptism service and they said, I've never seen anything like this ever. What? I don't know. It's like they can't, they, there's no category that they can put something into it. They're like, the way you love one another and the way you do, th- like I don't even know. This is amazing. So then you get to explain to them what it is that's actually amazing. That you look and smell like Jesus. Here's the good news and then I'm done. God isn't pursuing divorce. God's not pursuing divorce. God wants a big bride. It's one of the only places or contexts where you can talk about a bride being bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's good news to the husband. I think, I think, I don't, that might be a a stupid comment, don't know. But God isn't pursuing divorce. He wants a bigger bride. He wants to transform the desires and practices of the hearts of his people and those who aren't yet his people. And so we get to turn into his faithfulness today and then turn out to our city and tell of the great God. So we'll respond now. Um, we, We hear from God and then we respond. So how does God want you to respond? Does he want for you to to 
turn from your anti-God practices and desires? Are, are you not seeing him? Do, do you not enjoy his presence? You just go to him for his stuff. But you can go to him. You can go to him. So I'm going to pray for us as we respond through, through music, as we respond through our giving, as we respond by taking uh, communion, which is us remembering that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed for us. This is really something for followers of Jesus, but if today you become a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and take that. The way we give, there's a little black box on that table there. You can give by text or we have other ways as well. Maybe you need prayer. I, I need prayer all the time. People are praying for me all the time. Maybe you need prayer this morning. So there'll be people on the sides here as we're singing. You can come down and be prayed for. Learn to walk humbly. It's humble to come down and say, I don't have everything together, but you know what? No one in this place has it all together. So you're welcome to our club of not having it all together, but Jesus does. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are a sufficient God. You are amazing. You're alive. You're active. You're moving. I cannot imagine life without you. I think back to life before you, what I was doing before knowing you, and I can't believe that you would save someone like me. But you did. And Lord, there are people in here who are like me then. That they, they would say, I can't believe that God would rescue someone like me. But you will. Because you're this God that's overflowing with grace. You're not pursuing us with divorce and judgment. You're pursuing us with invitation to enjoy who you really are. So would you help us to respond humbly this morning? Would you help us respond with excitement as well? That we are, are worthy to be called your people because you have made us worthy. We thank you, Jesus, at this time of Advent that you, you came for us, but we also celebrate that one day you're coming again. And you're coming to get us, and you're coming to bring us to be with you, and you're gonna look at us eye to eye, face to face. You're gonna wipe away the final tear. You're gonna embrace us. I can't wait to hug you, Jesus. And you're gonna celebrate, and death will be done, and we'll only know life and sinlessness for all of the rest of eternity. So help us celebrate a small way of that reality this morning. We love you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.